Good morning. I guess you noticed that uh, winter's here. And uh, it's far too cold for me. Personally, anything below 80, 85 is, in my mind, cold weather. I like, I like hot weather. And uh, this is not my favorite time of year. But we're glad you're here. We appreciate so much your presence today. And hope and pray that you can come back tonight. I do want to mention very quickly, I was asked a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a week or so ago, about learning to study and how better to study the Bible. And so what I did or what I have done is try to create somewhat of a template for learning and growing and studying. And tonight I want to share some things with you. And by way of example, I'm simply taking the book of Ephesians. And I want to go over some principles that I think will help all of us become better students and better, well, really better students of the Word. And so, hope you'll be here tonight. Uh, if you want to enhance your study, I think that there are some principles that, that will help all of us in our spiritual growth. And so, please, if you can, make plans to be here tonight. We're going to be looking in our study today at Hebrews chapter 2. We appreciate so much your presence today. As always, we're grateful for those who visit we're very thankful that you, that you have chosen to come our way today. We pray that you'll come back. If you are looking for a church home at the onset of this year, we'd love to have you come and be a part of the work here. Always grateful for the opportunity to be together. In our study today, we want to think about the danger of letting our faith slip away. Sadly, sometimes things that are very important to us, things that mean a great deal to us. Sometimes we fail to exercise care. And as a result of that, we allow those things to slip away. And sadly, sometimes things that we treasure are gone before we know it. So what I want us to do today is to think about the importance of our faith. And in this context, in Hebrews chapter 2, you have to understand that the writer is appealing to Hebrew Christians, people that have come out of Judaism. They have obeyed the gospel. They're members of the church. And sadly, they are slipping back to Judaism. So what the writer does is contrast the superiority of the law of Christ to the law of Moses. In effect, what he is asking is this, why would you want to go back to an inferior system. And so it's with these points in mind that you have to look at Hebrews chapter 2 and recognize that the writer here is talking about the danger of letting our faith slip away. And so I want to begin by, first of all, talking about staying on course. And what the writer is going to do in verse 1, he's going to use a nautical term to help impress upon readers of every age the necessity of guarding their faith. And so this idea of staying on course, and we, we talk about being a Christian, and we are on the road, we are on course to go to heaven, aren't we? I mean, we're on course. Now what we want to do 
is stay on course, but then stay the course. We don't want to falter or give up along the way. So let's think about staying on course first and foremost. There's always the danger of drifting as saints. If you've ever spent much time in the water, you understand that there are certain things that cause drifting. We talk about tides and currents and winds. Those are things that contribute to drifting at sea. Now, spiritually speaking, are there things that would potentially cause drifting among those who are God's people? Well, yes. The answer would be a resounding yes. First, there are the tides of trials and tribulations and temptations. And the writer addresses the potential of trials and tribulations. And you think about today, the various trials and tribulations that we face every... Well, it's part of life, isn't it? Didn't Job say, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble? James talks talks about in his book, counting it all joy when we fall into various trials. Trials are a part of life. And sometimes those trials and tribulations, whether it be sickness or illness or disease, financial setbacks, the loss of a job, whatever, those are things that can cause spiritual drifting. And so we talk about the tides of trials and tribulations and temptations. And then what about the currents of compromise and concession? The world can have a tremendous impact upon us if we allow it to do so. Sometimes, whether we realize it or not, we begin to make concessions and compromises. Do you remember the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, neither give place to the devil. What happens is we allow him a foothold in our life. And before you know it, we begin to concede and compromise our faith. And then there are the the winds of worldliness. In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and how those things choke out out the word. And so the danger of drifting, listen to what the writer said, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. And why is that? Lest we drift away. The word drift here means to flow by, to slip. Imagine the captain of a ship missing the harbor. And so we talk about the danger of drifting. And then not just the danger of drifting, but the deceptiveness of drifting. If you've ever spent much time out in the water or out at seas, out at sea, you understand how deceptive the winds and the currents and the tides can be. I mean, here you are at point A, and before you know it, you're at point B. How many times have you been in the water, and little by little, you're moving? You don't realize it at first, and then you look back to land, and you get your bearing, and you think, man, oh man, what happened? 
Isn't that what happens with, with regard to our faith? Little by little, piece by piece, we begin to give up ground. And before you know it, we've drifted. That's what the writer is talking about here. The danger of drifting and the deceptiveness of drifting. Do you remember John in Revelation chapter 12 talked about the devil being the deceiver of the whole world? The devil deceives people into thinking that they're rock solid in their faith. And what happens over time is they are slipping away, moving away from the standard. Now, there's a second thing the writer talks about. And that is the danger of delinquent saints. Look now, if you would, at verse 3. He asks this question. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Let me just pause here for a minute. The writer here is talking about treating God's great salvation carelessly, neglecting the greatness of God's redemptive plan. Why is God's Redemptive plan, so great. You ever thought about that? Why would the writer here talk about the greatness of salvation? Let me just share with you. Number one, it's great in origination, isn't it? Look at what the writer says. Note, if you would, verse 3. Listen again. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to, to be spoken by the Lord? The author of salvation was whom? It was God, wasn't it? The Bible says that He foreordained before the world began to send the Christ into the world. Jesus came ultimately to seek and to save the lost. He came as God's answer to sin. Jesus came to redeem the human family. And so this divine plan was originated in the mind of Almighty God. So it's great in origination, and then it's great in confirmation. Know what he says, verse 3. How shall, we, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. Let me just pause here for a minute. The greatness of God's salvation was not conceived in the mind of mankind. We're not talking about a fairy tale. This is not a fable. This is not some ancient folklore. Rather, this is divine truth. Jesus came with a heaven-sent mission. Do you remember Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me? Jesus came... And he spoke, as Peter said, the words of eternal life. The words that Jesus spoke were distinctively different from others who preceded him. John said in chapter 7, verse 46, it was said of Jesus, no man ever spoke like this man. And then the various miracles that he performed. Did those miracles not authenticate and confirmed that He was who He claimed to be, the Son of God. John said in John chapter 5, in verse 36, 
Jesus here saying, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And so, the writer here is talking about that which had initially been spoken by the Lord and then confirmed to us by those who heard Him. And so this came from God. It was confirmed by God. What was it John said in John chapter 20, verse 30? Many of the signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, why? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, the greatness of God's salvation, great in origination, great in confirmation, and great in manifestation. Drop down, look at verse 9. In verse 9, the writer said, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. Go back and look at Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. And you remember Matthew in his account quotes the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote about seven centuries earlier. And he talked about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. And he said, his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew said, this is that which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. And he quoted that verse, Isaiah 7 verse 14. In John 1, you remember what John said? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John said, we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Hebrew writer is saying, look, we see Jesus. He was made a little lower than the angels crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for every man. That's the greatness of salvation. Jesus came and tasted death for you personally, individually. Sometimes we talk about the death of Christ and how Jesus died for the world. He did. And we fail to make personal application. Jesus died for me, for you. What was it Paul said, Galatians 2.20? Christ loved me, gave himself for me. That's personal. Not just personal, but profound. It hits home, doesn't it? So, the writer here, talking about the danger of delinquent saints. And he said, there is the possibility of neglecting salvation. How do we neglect our salvation? We neglect Having a prayer life, communicating with God, don't we? Being a prayer warrior. We neglect being a student of, student of His Word, spending time in God's Word on a regular basis. We neglect being like the psalmist of old who meditated in the law of Jehovah, and he did that both day and night in Psalm 1-2. We neglect being a part of the work of the church. We're not active, but rather we are inactive. We're disengaged. We're disconnected. And then we neglect our worship to God regularly. And so those are things that contribute to neglecting the greatness of God's salvation. Now I said, first and foremost, we have to stay on course. If you've ever traveled anywhere, whether by land or sea, you know that you have, there, there's a course that you're on and you want to stay on course. 
You don't want to deviate. But not only do you want to stay on course, you want to stay the course. And that's what the writer here is talking about. We want to stay on course, but we want to stay the course. And by that I mean we want to finish the race, don't we? We don't want to quit. We don't want to give up. We don't want to drift, as the writer talks about. We don't want to neglect spiritual things. So, what about staying the course? How are we going to stay the course? Number one, I want to suggest that we need to stay disciplined in the Scriptures. Note again what the writer said, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. Number one, exercise care in hearing the Word. What was it Jesus said in Mark 4? Do you remember verse 24, take heed what you hear? Is it possible sometimes that we, we hear but we don't hear? Like water off the back of a duck? Jesus is saying, look, you need to take heed what you hear. The writer to the Hebrews is saying, you need to give the more careful attention the more careful attention to the things which you have heard. Don't allow these things to slip away. Let them resonate. Take what you hear and make application. So not only are we to exercise care in hearing the Word, but I would suggest exercise care in handling the Word. Exercise care in how you handle the Word. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul talks about studying to show ourselves approved unto God. He said, a workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How do you handle the truth? Solomon said, buy the truth and sell it not. To recognize that this book we're talking about is the very word of God. This is God speaking to us And personally, this is God speaking to me. This is God speaking to you. And what this book says is, I'm going to judge you one day. Do you remember in Hebrews chapter 4, the writer said the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword? And he said, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. What he's saying is God's Word is a critic. So you can look into the mirror of God's Word and you can either handle it rightly or wrongly, correctly or incorrectly. So stay disciplined in the Scriptures. Could I ask you today, how much time are you spending studying God's Word? We're in the new year now. We're almost a month in. Did you make the resolution to study, to meditate on God's truth more so this year than you did last? How are you doing? Are you a better student today than you were last month, last year? So, if we're going to stay the course, we've got to stay disciplined in the Scriptures. There's a second thing. We've got to stay devoted to the Savior. 
And I think in order for us to maintain devotion to God, first and foremost, we've got to remember His sacrifice. Look again at verse 9, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that He, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Remember the sacrifice of Jesus? Do you think it's possible that some of the Christians to whom the writer was addressing in the first century, they had forgotten the depth of Christ's sacrifice for their sins? Do you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 when he said, but we see Jesus? You remember that? He talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 that Jesus Christ, though He were rich, yet for our sakes He became poor, that we through His poverty might be made rich. Is it possible sometimes we forget the depth of Christ's suffering? We forget about the body that was given in our stead. We forget about the blood shed for us. Can you really conceive in your mind or conceptualize in your mind the fact that this was God in the flesh dying for us? And the writer here is saying, you need to understand, Christ paid the price for sin. He tasted death for every man. No exclusions. So, His sacrifice for us. And then He also addresses His service to us. How so? Well, drop down if you would and look at verse... Note if you would verse 17. Therefore in all things He had to be made like His brethren that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That goes back to his sacrifice, his redeeming work. But look at verse 18. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus can give us victory over temptation, can he not? Did Paul not say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that with the temptation will come also a way of escape? Was Jesus tempted as we are? How does temptation come? to those of us who are part of the human family. There are basically three avenues through which we're all tempted. The very avenues by which Jesus was tempted. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Temptation may be packaged differently. It might come in different forms, different ways, but the bottom line is that's how the devil attacks us. And what the writer is saying is, look, Jesus has lived in human flesh. He's been there. He has been where you are. He has suffered temptation. He's faced it. He's been victorious over it. And just as Jesus was victorious over temptation, He can give you victory over temptation. Listen again to what He said. He is able to aid those who are tempted. That's Jesus. Not only will He give us victory over temptation, the Bible says He can give us victory over the tomb. Back up, look at verse 14. 
Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. How many of us fear death? Do you fear it? Are you anxious about the possibility, the reality of death? You know, a lot of folks don't like to talk about death. And many of us would rather, if we had, I mean, if it were up to us, we would rather not attend funerals and go to cemeteries. I understand that. But death is a reality. And what the writer was saying to the saints in the first century and what he's saying to those of us in the 21st century is this. That Jesus, through death, destroyed him, disarmed him, who had the power of death, that is the devil. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, he dealt the devil a death blow from which he can never recover. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter. What was it Paul said? Jesus rose from the dead the third day. If Christ has not been raised from the dead... Then he said, our preaching is vain, our faith is vain, we're still in sin. Yes, Paul talked about the sting of death. But the bottom line is, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said, our body, placed in the grave, will one day come forth again. He said, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. This mortal body will be clothed with immortality. This mortal body will be clothed with immortality. That's why he could say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are victorious. We can be victorious over the tomb. Death is not the end. That's what the writer's saying. Think about that for a minute. We talk about the Lord's sacrifice for us and then the Lord's service to us. He gives us victory over temptation. He can give us victory over trial and troubles in life, but He can also give us victory over the tomb. Death is not the end. That's what He's saying. Now, a third thing, very quickly. Note, if you would, again, chapter 2. We're talking about staying the course. We've got to stay determined to be steadfast, don't we? We've got to have an anchor. You know, ships typically at sea will drop anchor, won't they? In order for us to maintain our, our faith and not drift, we've got to have an anchor. So turn over, if you would, to chapter 6 for a minute. In chapter 6, verse 19, the writer said, This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. We have an anchor of the soul. And that's what keeps us sure and steadfast. Now turn over to chapter 12 for a minute. In chapter 12, we talk about, again, staying the course. We want to stay on course, but we want to stay the course. So what about being devoted? What about being determined? What about what about determining to be steadfast come what may. Look at chapter 12. First, we've got to focus on Christ, and secondly, we've got to be faithful 
to Christ. The writer said, therefore we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, going back to those Old Testament saints of days gone by, those great men and women of God who faced difficulties and trials and tribulations and yet through faith were triumphant. He said, let us lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily ensnares us. and Let us run with endurance the race set before us. Looking unto Jesus, that's our focus in life, isn't it? He is the focal point. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let me ask you this question. Was Jesus focused during his lifetime? Yes, he was. He came to earth with a purpose. He went to the cross with purpose. He died with purpose. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus. We're focused. And we're faithful. Jesus was faithful to the Father who called him. Now look at verse 3. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Jesus struggled, yes. Jesus persevered, yes. And so he said, look, you look at him as your great example. You focus on him and you stay faithful. Why? He said, because it's possible to, to become weary and discouraged in your souls. People who become weary and discouraged, you know what happens? They drift. They allow their faith to slip away. And what the writer is saying is, we can't afford to do that. You want to go to heaven? I know you do. If you want to go to heaven, number one, you've got to stay on course. The course, we are running, as the writer said. We're running a race. The ultimate goal is heaven. So we've got to stay on course, but we've got to stay the course. We can't afford to quit. Can't afford to walk away. Can't afford to give up. Look, can it be tough? Sure it can. Can we get discouraged? Absolutely. Can we become despondent? Yes. Are there times in life when we'd like to just wave the white flag and say, you know what, I've had enough, I'm walking away? Sure. But we can't afford to do that. That's why the writer is saying, look, don't let your faith slip away. Stay the course. Stay the course. If you're here today and let's just say you've been in some rocky waters lately and life has not gone as planned and you're hurting and let's just say that many years ago you were baptized into Christ and for whatever reason you allowed your faith to slip away. You began to drift, and before you know it, found yourself in a distant land. Here's the beauty of it. You can come home. You know, the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is in the business of forgiving people. He'll forgive you. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you if you need that today. It might be that you've never obeyed the gospel. You're not a Christian. So what would you need to do? Well, number one, you've got to have faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. So faith followed by repentance, a change of life. That's what Peter said on Pentecost Day to those people who wanted to know what, did, what they needed to do. He said, repent. And then he added to that, be baptized. Why? For the remission, for the forgiveness of your sins. When you come to Christ and you're baptized into Him, 
All of your sins are washed away, Acts 22, 16. God will put you in the church. And if you'll be faithful until death, if you'll stay the course, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here today and you need to respond to the invitation, won't you do so as we stand and sing?